1: And their mother nature four after four you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James on today's show we speak with lawyer Paul Kidd about the hares and hyenas raid Alastair Laurie joins us to talk about the federal elections LGBTQ policy implications and later in the show artist and performer Creatrix Tiara joins us in the studio well in the early hours of Saturday May 11 Victoria Police mistakenly raided the residents at iconic Melbourne bookstore hares and hyenas on the line we have lawyer and veteran community advocate Paul Kidd. Paul, welcome to 3CR. Good, afternoon. Good to be here. Paul, I wish it was under better circumstances. What can you tell us about what happened at Hares and Hyenas?
2: Police have bursting in. what's been described as an armed Lebanese carjacker. They've completely gone to the wrong address. They've terrorised uh, the people there who've woken up in the middle of the night to the sound of police bursting into their property with torches. And and uh, one of the police is Denysimopolis, and it comes a very... I think reasonable conclusion that they have under a sort of anti-gay attack run out on the street. He's been arrested by the police in a very violent fashion. Had uh, quite horrific injuries as a result.
1: Absolutely, I understand he may have lost the use of his left arm as a consequence of it being broken by police. What policy changes do you think Victoria Police should be making as a as a consequence of this?
2: Because. Queer community, an event that, that resonates very strongly with our historical uh, issue with the police. The queer community has for most of its history being targeted by police, it's been targeted at one of the more vulnerable communities. So, for the people who went through the tasty raids, for, for people who've had historical issues with it, and also for queer and trans people of colour, refugees, um, transgender people have problems with the police this story has got a lot of media attention and it's got that attention because the police you know got the quote-unquote wrong persons. but the fact is this is how the police operate police increasingly militarized and in particular we have this unit the unit that was involved the critical incident response team who's got a very bad record they are kind of paramilitary police. They are the people who were who stormed the Inflation Nightclub in 2017 and shot one of the patrons there. They're the people who arrested the man outside of Richmond, Brunswick in 2017, and he was horribly injured. They're also the people who refused and failed to arrest Jimmy Garvey. So they're a highly militarised unit of the Victoria Police that have a very poor record and really need to be investigated and looked at, and we really need to look at the increasing in militarization of our police.
1: Absolutely. It's incredible, isn't it, that they uh, have made those errors, considering how many resources, how much money is put into them by the government. You'd think the training would, would mean that these incidents would be less likely to happen.
2: Absolutely. Today, the Victorian government, the very progressive Dan Andrews, Labor government down here in Victoria has announced a massive you know, uh, spending on prisons and, and police. So it's an ongoing issue. Today it's announced that we we're 1,500 more in uh, In Victoria, there's an investment of $1.8 billion in building. And, re- and the justification of that is that the, is that the government is employing 3,000 more police members. So you've got this you know, massive investment in a law and order response and practically nothing for prevention of the crime, practically nothing for the victim of police brutality. And, yeah, you'd think with that, that level of investment, that trained, you'd think that could rely on the police to be, you know, reasonable in their use of force. The police occupy an incredibly privileged position in society. They're the only uh, institution in society that's legally allowed to use force in other, other citizens. And yet they uh, use that force all too often, indiscriminately, excessively. And actually, they are the people who investigate themselves. So I'm really I am very sad for for the uh, the proprietors of that Not because of what they've had to go through. But uh, hopefully this incident shines a light on the need for there to be greater supervision of police and better institutions for the investigation of corruption.
1: Do you think we need law reforms in Victoria to actually implement those recommendations you just discussed?
2: I think we do. I and mean, in most cases when people have problems with the police and people have problems with the police every Single day to Victoria. They're usually people who are vulnerable, they're people who don't have great agency, they don't have great resources. You know, The, the only recourse they have to complain about the police. If you complain to the police about the police, that needs to change. We need a proper independent oversight
1: of police. Do you think this matter being referred to the Independent Anti-Corruption Commission IBAC is enough? Do you think that's an adequate response? Well,
2: uh, I mean, it's. it's an ongoing process, so I don't want to interfere with that. I Understand, there's some or some processes that the people involved have initiated. But I guess we'll have to wait and see what the result is from from IBAC. I do think that IBAC needs better, greater independence, and in particular, the you know the, the processes in which I matter can be referred to IBAC improved. The police shouldn't be investigating themselves. The police should be subject. To an absolutely independent oversight that should be accessible to everyone who's a victim of uh, of police brutality or police corruption or police mismanagement, no matter uh, how serious or severe
0: that, that
1: is. Do you think the response from Victoria's Premier, Daniel Andrews, has been adequate and also the response of his ministers, uh, Lisa Neville and Martin Foley?
2: Well, I know that Lisa Neville and Martin Foley have some concerns about this and about the response from the the, the police commissioner and the police union obviously have closed ranks around the police involved in this case. You know, as I said at the outset, this kind of police violence is absolutely normal. It happens all of the time. We just don't hear about it usually because it usually doesn't happen to people who have the capacity to get a story told in the media. This has been an absolute <laughs> screw up by the police involved. You know, if there's any silver lining to this, the silver lining is that it shines a light on the on the increasing militarisation of police in Victoria and on lack of accountability of police for their actions.
1: Paul Kidd, thank you so much for talking to us today on 3CR. Your insights are much appreciated.
2: Yet our best trained, best educated, best equipped, best prepared troops refuse to fight. Matter of fact, it's safe to say that they would rather switch than fight.
1: 425, you're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. While the re-election of the Morrison government and Labor's defeat have serious policy ramifications for the LGBTIQ community, on the line we have queer policy expert Alistair Laurie. Alistair, welcome back to In Your Face. Thanks
0: very much for having me.
1: The Australian Christian Lobby has urged the Morrison government since the election to pass a Religious Freedom Act. What would that mean for the LGBTIQ community?
0: So I think what we're talking about here is the Religious Discrimination Bill, which the government has committed to as a result of the radical religious freedom review so we've known for several months that the government has been developing this bill but they wouldn't tell us what was in it before the election um, which is a little bit concerning uh, it could be one of two things on the one hand it could be an ordinary religious discrimination bill so kind of like the age discrimination act where it protects religious minorities and religious people against discrimination and most people would think that that's
1: The Australian Christian Lobby ran a field campaign for the coalition during the election. To what extent do you think the government will reward them for their efforts?
0: So, there have been lots of stories uh, from the Australian Christian Lobby and others trying to claim that this was a religious freedom election. But as we've discovered over a, a number of years, just because the ACL says something is true doesn't mean it is. There's no evidence that this was a
1: Prime Minister, of course, did issue a few dog whistles during the campaign with phrases like, I'll burn for you, which has perhaps energised some aspects of the Pentecostal community. Do you think that's going to renew their pushes for queer kids to be discriminated against at religious schools and also queer staff?
0: I think we need to be clear from the outset that the majority of people of faith in Australia, the majority of religious people in Australia uh, think that LGBTI Australians should be treated equally. They showed that through the postal survey. But we can't ignore the fact that there are some religious extremists and religious fundamentalist organisations um, who actively oppose our rights. And I don't think that
1: and Greens' policies to amend the Sex Discrimination Act and Fair Work Acts to stop religious schools from discriminating against students and staff effectively dead in the water as a consequence of this election result?
0: Not entirely. So we should remember that Prime Minister Morrison in October made reference on the exception, they will have a discussion paper in September.
1: Do you think we can expect more culture war attacks against the queer community by the federal government as a consequence of the election result and them being returned? And how might those attacks manifest?
0: I think we can definitely expect more culture war attacks from the Australian Christian Lobby and Fundamentalists.
1: you call on Scott Morrison to actually appoint uh, a Minister for LGBTIQ Issues? I know he's currently reconsidering his new
0: cabinet. I think that would be helpful. Uh, I don't think it's something that I would expect.
1: What about some lost opportunities as a result of this election result for the LGBTIQ community? And I'm thinking, of course, that there is no government policy for a Ministerial Advisory Committee on LGBTIQ Issues. Uh, that must be a great disappointment to you.
0: Certainly, I think that that part of the reason why there are a lot of LGBTI Australians disappointed by the election outcome uh, is not necessarily partisanship, but knowing that the Labor Party took such a comprehensive LGBTI agenda to last week's election um, and that that agenda is not going to be implemented. But I think we should also be aware that now that the Labor Party has lost that election and and they're likely to have a new leader from Monday, uh, Anthony Albanese, that those policies are up for grabs. And so as well as trying to make sure that the, the Commonwealth Government follows through on its policy of protecting LGBT students, we need to be pushing the ALP to make sure they don't backtrack on their existing commitment, so they don't get back on their promise to, el- to protect LGBT students and teachers and remove discrimination elsewhere.
1: To what extent do you think the queer community should be actually pushing moderates within the Liberal Party? And I'm thinking of Maurice Payne, for example, and perhaps some other high-profile figures who have been returned to actually advocate for our community and Cabinet and if they were to do that, how effective do you think that could be?
0: I think we're going to need to utilise all of the potential resources that we have and so it's not just So I think and Dean Smith in Western Australia. So I think all of those are people who we're going to need to be lobbying to make the case that the
1: government shouldn't be implementing policies of exclusion and division. Absolutely. And of course, you know, you mentioned some of those people there. That's There's three gay men that I know of that have been, you know, returned to government as a consequence of this election result. Surely we must be lobbying them as members of our community to speak up more for our interests. You would think that if they were to take a strong line, there may be some result of of effectiveness there, especially around, you know, issues such as a spokesperson or a ministerial advisory committee. I mean, surely they must have have some grants within the government and of course I'm thinking of Tim Wilson as well who's been credited with the franking policy success so you'd think they'd have a bit of currency within the party
0: Uh, I think that they have a responsibility to their community um, and that we will need to be pushing them to follow through on that responsibility in the upcoming term so the government at this stage looks like it will be elected with 78 seats 76 to pass legislation
1: There, diamond store, diamond twenty to five run. Interface on three cr with James. I'm joined in the studio by performer, gamer, artist, creatrix Tiara. Hello. Uh, welcome.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: It's great to have you on board. It's been a while, so I thought we'll get we'll get Tiara back to have a bit of a <laughs> chat. Look, um, you can't get rid of it. Look, you've done some work recently with the Free Play Independent Games Festival, and you're a bit of a gamer.
3: So tell us about that. I mean, you know, there's all the things about big gamer girls or whatever which is besides that um free play independent games festival is the longest running independent games festival in the world wow. it's been around for like 15 years it's the 15th anniversary and it used to be a festival run by next wave and now it's become independent And the goal of free play is to look at not just like games, say video games, people just kind of assume that's all games is, but also the notion of play and interactivity and games culture, which is what I'm really more into. It's less about, oh, you know, I spent like 10 hours a day playing blah, blah, blah game, but more about seeing how games and interactive media can be used to explore a certain issue or express something about the world or about yourself. And I first found the power of that many, many, many years ago. Um, I was part of a game jam in San Francisco. Game jam is like an event where a bunch of people are put in the room together for like 48, 72 hours. And you just make a game. You might not even know anyone in the room, but you just come up with a game on the spot. And I had this pitch for a game if, where it's like Papers, Please, but from the perspective of the immigrant. Papers, Please is like this well-known indie game where you play like a Soviet-era immigration agent. And so your, your goal is to like look through everyone's passports and make sure they're, like, correct. And there's, like, this plot line about refugees or whatever. And I got so annoyed by this game. I'm like, oh, I don't want to sympathize with this immigration agent. Fuck off. As <laughs> someone who's immigrated a few times and immigrated to my existence. So I just had this pitch, like, I want to make a game from the other side. But I, my coding skills are from the late 90s. And I don't know what the kids are doing right now. But if two people came up to me who have coded programming experience and say we want to make this game with you so i wrote the content and we make this game called here's your fucking papers which is basically a bunch of highly annoying mini puzzles related to immigration like one is like a maze and you have to escort a piece of paperwork but it keeps getting caught behind walls and barriers and stuff so just go pick it up and then there was another one where it's another maze but all the walls are invisible every time you hit one it's like oh i'm sorry you need five thousand dollars oh i'm sorry you need to give us 20 years of your family. you know like all this ridiculous paperwork you need to send in And we demoed the game at the end of the Game Jam and seeing everyone's faces as they saw how excruciating the game really was, that was like the most visceral reaction I've gotten. Like I've talked about immigration my entire life too. I've made art about it. I've performed about it. I've written about it. But that was maybe like the first time I saw people actually respond in the way that felt like they get it. Like most people kind of, yeah, that is frustrating intellectually, but if they haven't been in the system, they don't know. They can only like, say, like, oh, that sounds tedious. But because through this game, even though it's not literally about immigration, like you're not filling out forms in this game, but because it depicts the emotional experience of it, of immigration, of the tedium, of the process, and that people could feel what I felt going through all of this. And that was like when I realized, oh, there is, there is a potential there. For games to be this medium for people to really understand something that they may not be able to really grok some other way. And so, free play as a festival likes to look at that kind of aspect of games making. So, not necessarily Sometimes the technical stuff, like how do you do the skill? That's good. But also, there's a lot that's in general about like culture and how do we tell the stories that we tell? And you know, this past. Free play. The theme was introspection, so people looking at themselves and how they relate to the games. Well, like I moderated a panel about aftercare and the emotional drop that happens when you re- release a big project and how that works across different fields and how people take care of themselves. So yeah, so I was volunteer at Free Play and I appreciate that space as being one where you don't have to be a gamer, capital G gamer. Like you don't even need to have anything to do with games, but. They really want to welcome those other worlds in and see how the arts or community or whatever can incorporate play into their work.
1: Of course, tonight you're heading to the meat market for Return to Escape from (laughs) Woomera. Yes. What's all that about?
3: So Return to Escape... So Escape from Woomera is a game that was made some time ago and it's sort of like an adventure puzzle game where you play a refugee trying to escape from the Woomera Detention Centre. And it's based on a true experience. Like, I think they interviewed, like, actual refugees who were there and someone gave them, like, the layout of the space. So it's based on what they actually, ex- refugees, like, experienced being in this detention centre. And it was so controversial that the Australia Council, pool, like, funded it and then, like, kind of unfunded it or, like, unassociated themselves from it and did not fund any more game related things until this year when they funded free play. Free play this year was the first game thing Australia Council was funded seeing Escape from rumor So that game was controversial because one side was like, oh you know you're trivializing refugee experiences by being into a game. And then the other side was like, oh this is a controversial topic and how dare you like air our dirty laundry about detention centers and you making us sound worse and really yeah, blah blah blah. And so Return to Escape from Umora is a uh, project by a Sydney group called Applespiel where they have the game being played and people in the audience can play the game and while the game is being played they have a panel of people commentating on the game but also like uh talking about the issues the games bring up. So I was part of the Sydney run of this at Carriage Works last year. I was on two panels. One of them was with Julian Burnside. That was a fun panel. He was he was like, you know, he's very sweet. He's giving all this like really intellectual information about refugee laws and the history of Australia and all that. And I'm just like super salty, slightly tipsy. So being an immigrant sucks. And I'm sure being a refugee sucks even more. I don't know how we were in the same panel together. And then like the second panel was me and a couple of other immigrant artists talking about like how we deal with the topic of migration in our art. So I'm not sure who's on the panel in the Melbourne show. I'm going there mainly as a audience member because the producers reached out and said to bring it to Melbourne, they want to come. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm interested to see who they, if the format has changed. And, you know, the topic has become important again because of All that's happening in immigration, in refugee detention centers right now. And it's, even though Escape from Woomera was like, what, mid 15 or something years ago, like a while ago, it's somehow still, still relevant.
1: Which is scary, isn't it? That things haven't changed that much.
3: Yeah. Like, you know, the only thing that makes the game dated is the graphics and you know, like as a game it was interesting for me as someone who has some experience with the design of games. Part of me just thinking like, Oh, if you made this the way like escape games were made, like you could make this question a little better and da 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 da. But also it's just like in in some way the, the content hasn't necessarily changed, you know?
1: It sounds like a great kind of exercise in activism, you know. It sounds like it really kind of evokes empathy with refugees who, you know, were in Woomera, for example. And that's a good thing to be encouraging.
3: Yeah. So that was one of the sort of uh things about Escape for Woomera that really split people. Like some people, including some refugee activists and refugees themselves, brought up what you said, that it was a good way to... Build empathy, But then there were other, some people who thought it was trivializing or minimizing what we well, actually as go through because the idea of like, oh, it's not, it's just a game to you. It's not really a game. These are people's real lives here. So yeah, it'll be, um, now that it's a topic again, what Apple Spill is doing is trying to investigate whether there is space for something like Escape from Woomera in today's climate. Would this same game be able to exist now? Like, would you update it to make it more relevant now? Or, you know, like now? I guess it'd yeah. be
1: offshore now, wouldn't it? The escape oh, from Nauru.
3: Yeah, probably. Yeah, and then the like, government would be like, ah, you are revealing state secrets. We don't allow. We not even allow people to be at Nauru or Manus who are not refugees. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see like what the contemporary version of that would be.
1: Of course, you're also involved in the Quippings project, uh, and I understand they're taking applications for uh, a project for queer artists with disabilities. Tell us about that.
3: Sure. So Quippings is a collective of LGBT artists with disabilities. They've been running in Melbourne for, like, the past decade, and they've done shows for Midsummer, for Fringe. They've performed them all. It's like like, a, a rotating cast of people who are spoken word artists, uh, cabaret performers and so on, just making work about this disability, but away from the whole, like, disability porn thing. Like, oh, I'm so inspirational. or I'm so oppressed because I'm disabled. It just, it started out originally by Cass Duncan and company as a way to, for disabled artists to really talk about, like, their bodies and their sexualities and their desires in a way that uh, most spaces won't let them because of this idea that disabled people can't possibly have sexual interests. And it's sort of grown into like this sort of well-respected institution. And this year we got some funding to put on a show, which is going to be very different to what normally Quipkis normally does, which is we're looking for artists of all sorts of backgrounds, so like performers, uh, visual artists, designers, writing, whatever. And we're going to pair people with different skills together. So imagine like a dancer paired with a writer or like a 3D artist paired with a musician. And see what happens. That's my current favorite genre of YouTube video is like pairing different artists together. Like rock climbers learn how to pole dance or a fine artist and a graffiti artist need uh, try to work, uh, just... Had this random idea for a project, and Jack, Jackie Brown, my co-producer, and Kath were like, "Yeah, let's go for it." So yes, we are currently taking applications. If you look up Quipping's Facebook page, uh, Quipping Disability Unleashed, there is a post with the form you can fill out. We're taking applications until mid next month, and you know we take all experience backgrounds. You don't have to be like super skilled necessarily if you're if you're disabled, any disability, include invisible ones. Uh, chronic health we get a lot of people who are like I'm not disabled enough like we're not asking for your medical information just like if you consider yourself some level disabled it's fine and you are queer or gender diverse or trans um, yeah send in a form and we'll see if we can pay you up with someone
1: of course Tiara you're very well known to many of our listeners uh, for your act queer lady <laughs> magician where you actually do magic on stage which is pretty incredible what can we expect in the future from Ooh, Queer Lady Magician, your alter ego.
3: My alter ego. Oh, that's interesting because, like, we did finish two shows, one for Fringe last year and then the Midsummer Run and they went all right. Um, the Magician is having a bit of a break at the moment. Like, I might pop up at different random events to do little small sets. Um, yeah, it's it's mostly a, a bit of a break. Like, I feel like we've done the origin story, but I have some ideas for a sequel. A sequel about, you know, what if the magician just really gave in to their manipulative side And so far. The black
1: like, magician, the evil magician, is that the what The grimdark
3: dark magician, yeah. Well, 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 let's see. I mean, it's, it's idea stage at the moment, but, but we'll see. And I just, I found out recently that there's a show called Pen and Tell Us Fool Us. Well, like magicians compete to fool this Penn and Teller, this well-known magicians with their acts. And they, it's American, but they're holding auditions for Australian magicians at the Gold Coast later this year. And I really want to audition, mostly so I can do my cups and balls with menstrual cups trick. And I don't expect to actually fool Penn and Teller. They'll figure out what I'm doing in five seconds. But just to see if I can get menstrual cups on air, <laughs> see what happens. So maybe that'll be where Queer Lady Magician shows up on TV in America.
1: Wow. Now, you mentioned your origin show. Tell us about that for listeners that might not be familiar with it.
3: So the first Queer Lady Magician show tells the story of my origins of magic. Like It was my childhood love. And then I tried to do a show when I was younger and it didn't work out so well. And that killed my love of magic because I grew up with the idea that if you ever fail, you can't ever try again like failure's is not an option was
1: that like a cultural view that was entrenched oh into pretty you in Malaysia?
3: much yeah like in school constantly it was if you fail your life is over you can never fail at exams you can never fail at anything and so you had to be immediately perfect or at least like good enough that you won't stumble otherwise don't even try and so that stuck with me and people are like well you already like skilled another thing just focus on that. like okay fine um, and it wasn't until like many years later, I lived in San Francisco for a few years and met this lady named Blake Maxim, who turns out to also be a professional children's magician. And she got my love of magic back. But then, you know, it, the, the, the show also talks about like my tumultuous history with my ex, who also happens to be how I met Blake because she was a friend of Blake's. And, you know, how that, the, the, consequence of being emotionally manipulated by my ex and by other people and having to navigate that with magic being an art of manipulation (laughs) and so you know i go through like kind of this it's very meta it's like this emotional journey of trying to get back into magic but dealing with all of this like i've done it so long what if i fail imposter syndrome and then also i don't know if this with my values i don't want to manipulate people and there's this plot line about my assistant who is a white guy and he's actually trying to kill me and i don't realize this until i get killed then I come back and I kill him and it's great. But yeah, so all
1: this is happening on stage. All
3: this is happening on stage. So it's like you know, it's like the or superhero origin story. It's like how do I become the queer lady magician by going through this trial of getting past, you know, internal messaging about not being good enough. But also like societal messaging about like, oh well, you are a queer, gender diverse person of color. You shouldn't be on stage. No one wants you to do right? no one wants you to do anything and assert yourself and actually getting through that and being like, look, even if I'm not, like, the world's best magician, at least I, I am entitled to, like, to try Uh, at least it's enough for me to be here and present myself and present a different idea of what stage magic could be. And so many people responded to that. You know, I met so many people who were like, Oh, I used to love stage magic as a kid, but then I got tired of all this like boring white man." And I used to try that. I don't think I'm good enough to try, but they at least saw something in the show. But like, you know what? It's worth like trying again. And now I have a model for someone who resembles me closer than like any random white guy. Uh, yeah, so it's it's been interesting to see the response to it. Like, I just started with, like, ha, ah, it wouldn't be funny to do something as a queer lady magician, and then it just, like, blew up.
1: Fantastic. Tiara, we're out of time. I could chat with you all day. It's <laughs> awesome what you're doing. It's arts activism, in my view. Thank you so much for talking to us today on 3CR. Uh,
0: thanks for having me. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.